<clears throat> so tonight, um, at the request of uh, uh, Joe Andrews, we're going to be looking at Acts 2, 14-41, which is Peter's first sermon, and um, give you a chance to turn to that. I'm going to be using what's called the Net Bible, if you had ever heard of that translation. It's a, it's a new translation that uh, has been done by a committee, mainly from Dallas Seminary, and in, in, uh, which has sort of a Baptist orientation. And you can find it online. The reason why it's called the Net Bible is because the translation was uh, shared on, on the internet while they were doing it. So you can actually go and get it, read it for yourself for free if you're so interested. Just go to netbible.com. So we're in Acts chapter 2. And uh, as we get started with Acts in, in, in any sermon, and this is going to be Peter's for sermon. It's not, my, it's not really a sermon tonight. But um, <clears throat> we need to look at the context it's always important to think of the context. Where and when did Peter preach his sermon? And as we think about that, it's in Acts chapter 2. So the book of Acts, if you remember, is the second volume in a two-volume work known as Luke-Acts. So the Gospel of Luke was written first. The Acts is the, the second part to that. Each book is called a volume in the original because it is literally one scroll's length, 133 feet, um, when it was written out, and, which was the maximum length of a scroll. And it was written probably around 57, 59 AD, around maybe 60. So shortly after the letter to the Corinthians, within 10 years of, it, of the letter to the Corinthians. And, and it was written by Luke, who was the companion of the Apostle Paul. The story of this, uh, we're going to be looking at tonight, Paul, Peter's first sermon, occurs on a particular day, which is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a feast of the Jews, that was 50 days after Passover. If you think about when Easter was, the Jewish Passover, um, when Jesus was crucified, was that Thursday night and Friday before he was crucified. It went for seven days. And then 50, week, 50 days after that, hence Pentecost, the word for 50, was another feast called the Feast of Weeks. And the, the Passover feast, besides remembering um, God's deliverance of the people of Israel from, from Egypt, was also a festival of tithing. So the barley harvest came in right around Passover, and they would bring the tithe for that. And then the main wheat harvest would come 50 days, roughly 50 days after that. So they would have this feast of Pentecost, it was a feast day, when people would bring in their tithes, and there were special uh, ceremonies or, or worship in the temple that was prescribed by, by Scripture. In that same feast, during the time between the Old and New Testaments, it developed that the Jews also commemorated at that feast the giving of the law to Moses, the, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. So it was a feast day of celebration of, of, uh, of success in the harvest. So there was a lot of uh, partying and worship going on as well. And there was also a time when um, people were remembering what God had done for the people of Israel when he established a relationship with them by giving them the law. Okay, so this sermon occurs as an outdoor event uh, early in the morning at 9 o'clock we'll read because of the fact that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and, um, and followers of Jesus who were in the upper room in Jerusalem. 
And you can read that about that in the first 14 verses of, of Acts chapter 2. It's always helpful to kind of know where that's at. So let's kind of look at that. Okay, going the wrong way. Okay, so this is an aerial view of Jerusalem, and you can see where the old city is marked. Um, and you can notice the Kidron Valley is on the eastern side of, of Jerusalem, and the Hinnom Valley swings around to the western side. The upper room, where we think it was, and what tradition holds, is in the southwest corner of the, of the city. The current old city wall was built in 1492. Most of it was along the biblical lines of the wall, except the south, southwest portion, the southern portion, in which um, <clears throat> the Muslims, when they built the wall, did not build it according to the way the biblical wall was, and those who did so lost their life because of it. Um, <clears throat> but nonetheless, get a little closer look at this, you can see it's behind, there's a church, it's actually it's a monastery, the Monastery of the Missions, which is in front of it, and we get real close to it, you can see right where it's at. So if you were to go to Jerusalem on a tour, you would most likely be taken to a place that looks just like this. This is what the traditional upper room is, but the problem with that is, it's a nice site, it is a church that was built by the Crusaders in the Middle Ages, and then was converted to a mosque by the Muslims, and then in modern times was turned into a tourist attraction. So if you go to the, um, there's another look, look at it, you can kind of feel for the size of it, um, but if you go to the so-called the, the first floor and go into the basement, there's an entrance there, it's not where most tourists go, is uh, entrance to what they call the, to David's tomb. Now, David was buried um, in lower Mount Zion. The problem is, is that Mount Zion is on the eastern hill of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the city of hills and valleys. And this is on the western hill. And in modern times, they renamed the, the western hill Mount Zion. It's not biblical Mount Zion. And if you go in the basement, you're actually going on to what would have been the upper room. <clears throat> and you'll see this room where they have this... Uh, empty casket, which they claim is David's tomb. Notice the niche in the back, that's sort of a deep inset niche. Okay, so the archeologists are, are believe this was a, an early worship space, and they would usually put the copies of scripture in that niche. And in, in a normal synagogue, that niche would be facing towards the Temple Mount, or where the temple was, and where the, the Holy of Holies was, where, where God dwelt according to the Old Testament promises. And, but this, but this uh, niche is not directed that way. It's directed towards the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The room dates to the first century. And so this is a church from the first century, which is commemorating, most likely, the place where the upper room was. And so if you consider the fact that today, um, the surface of Jerusalem is about 35 to 66 feet above where it was in Jesus' day. It makes sense that this would be the basement, which now the basement would have been the upper room. So, there we have it. Going the wrong way. So, let's look at, just to give you a feel here, there again is where we're talking about. Um, 
So let's look at how Peter organized his sermon. It's always good to look at how, um, how something like that happens and how he did that. And so there's a couple of things we need to note. First of all, if you look with me at verse 40 of chapter 2, really quick. Verse 40 says, With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. What that tells us is that this sermon that Peter, that Peter, we have, that Peter spoke is a summary that Luke is giving us. It's sort of like the Reader's Digest version. If you remember what the Reader's Digest version, it would be sort of like the concise main points of the thing. So it's not the whole sermon, it's just part of the sermon or the main points of it. And so he's giving us a summary. Second thing we ought to note is that it's a uh, it's organized around three Old Testament quotes. The first quote is going to be from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. The second one will be from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And the third will be from Psalm 110, verse 1. And Peter organizes them from the longest quote to the shortest. So the first quote is the longest. The, next, the middle one is sort of the middle range. And the last one is the shortest. In an inverse proportion, he gives his comments. He starts with short comments, then the quote, long quote, middle comments, then the middle quote, and then long comments and the shortest quote. <clears throat> so it's, they're, they're working um, against each other that way. It's an organizational method. And also, it is modeled after a traditional or common Roman way of speaking in the first century or, or a common way of speaking in the first century publicly. So the first half is a defense and it uses, um, it, it, it seeks to, to demonstrate or defend how they're innocent of being drunk um, for speaking in tongues and, 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 uh, and what's going on in this crowd as we'll see in a minute. And on the other hand, the second half of it is an attack on those of the hearers, certain Jews who are responsible for the death of Jesus. So we have an attack and a defense, or <clears throat> a defense and an attack, and then we'll have a, a final invitation or, or a remedy. So as we think about that, we also need to understand that how he addresses the crowd. As he speaks, he becomes more comfortable after all, it's his first sermon, and I can remember the first sermon that I preached, it was the, the congregation was pretty gracious, to say the least. Um, but nonetheless, he starts off very formal and rigid, and as he moves along, he becomes more comfortable and more personal. So, for instance, if you look, in verse 14, he addresses them as... Um, <clears throat> men of, of Judea or Judean men and those living or dwelling in Jerusalem, real formal. The next one is men of Israel. And then he gets down to it as brothers. So he goes from formal to being more comfortable and more relaxed, which also means that the, that the people who are hearing him were probably becoming more relaxed as well. And so they also respond back to Peter and to the 11 apostles who are standing with him as, as brothers as well. 
For those of you who might be uh, feminists, I'll just point out, though, that this passage is very specific in that Peter is addressing men. He uses nouns specifically related to men. On the attack side of things, that might be a good thing. Um, but, But nonetheless, his speech is formalized in that way. It also is... Uh, not just is it about, about men, but it's also about the fact that it's meant to Jews and not to Gentiles so much. <clears throat> so he's, his audience is a Jewish audience, and he's focused on the men in that audience. So let's take a look at it a little bit further. Okay, so... Acts 2, 14 and 15. But Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed them. You men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, know this, and listen carefully to what I say. In spite of what you think, these men are not drunk, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. Nine o'clock is the time when the Jewish uh, temple has its morning sacrifice, Generally, it's a time for people to spend in prayer. The normal Jewish person would wake up at dawn. They would get about their work. They would take a break at nine for prayer and devotionals, we might say. And then after that, they would have their breakfast at around 10 o'clock. That was sort of the normal first century Jewish uh, morning. So it's nine o'clock and they're not drunk. But this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it will be, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And I will perform wonders in the sky and above and miraculous signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will be changed to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And then everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't know what's going on. There we go. Okay, so we ought to know that Peter quotes from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is that abbreviated LX. That's about 70. It's a standard abbreviation for that. The Septuagint was a translation from the original Hebrew of the Old Testament into Greek. And it was the common Bible that the, the Christians tended to use. But it's a translation that took place over roughly 100 years. And the and it's, it's the text that Peter is going to be using and, and Luke will re- refer to throughout all of his use of the Old Testament. He quotes first from the book of Joel. Joel is one of the 12 minor prophets. Minor, not in importance, but in length. Originally, the 12 minor prophets were grouped as one book. They were separated out in the Christian canon later on. But Joel is, um, is difficult for us to understand because we have no context for it, really. We don't know when Joel prophesied exactly. We don't, we don't know um, <clears throat> who exactly he was. 
We do know, though, that he was prophesying after there had been a plague of locusts, which he said was a judgment from God, and that there possibly was another coming army invasion that would be even worse. And he calls the people to repentance, and then in chapter 2, in this section, where if they repent, then God promises to do these things. And among the promises are that um, God will pour out his spirit. Peter, Peter makes a, an interpretive decision because the prophecy in, 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 uh, in Joel chapter 2, 28 begins with the phrase, after all of this. And Peter makes the decision that what Joel was referring to were the last days. And so he says that in the last days, God is going to pour out his spirit. That word pour out is kind of interesting. It means literally to rain, like rain coming down and wetting the earth. Um, And it's an unusual phrase. But nonetheless, he speaks of this as coming upon us. and, And he wants us to understand, Peter does, first of all, that the giving of the Holy Spirit is the beginning of the end times of the last days, which will culminate in the return of Christ. So the way we should understand this text, as Peter understands it, is that not everything is coming true all at once, but that it's begun to become true. Excuse me. Okay, so then, this prophecy, what really is at the heart of this, is that there's a crisis of prophecy, and I need to kind of explain that in a minute. When I was studying in Israel, um, my, one of my professors pointed out that there were three, three real big crises that the Jewish community was dealing with in the first century. And we're going to talk about, we're going to be, this, we're, this sermon deals with two of them. The first is, is that after the prophecy of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, there was not a prophet in Israel for over 400 years until the coming of John the Baptist. And... <clears throat> And yet, God had promised to Moses that he would always, there would always be a prophet, at least that's how they understood it to be, um, letting people know what God's will and desire was for them. And yet, it, God was silent. It caused um, a great deal of consternation in the period between the Old and New Testament. And that, that consternation kind of went like, sort of like this. So, so they felt that prophecy was tied directly to the presence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the early uh, rabbinical movement or the early J- Jewish um, teachers of the law, they believed that the, Holy, the giving of the Holy Spirit and prophecy were, were basically one and the same. And they, um, <clears throat> when that happened, the silence happened, they decided that, that, that um, they needed to take over as teachers of the law. And the reason why they did that can be read, you can read about this in Nehemiah chapter 8, where originally the priesthood of Israel was given two, two responsibilities. The first responsibility was to offer worship and sacrifices in the temple. And the second was to teach the people the law. But the, people have been, but the priests have been neglecting that second responsibility. So a group of Levites, under the leadership of Ezra, um, t- took on that responsibility 
um, and began to teach the people the law. As time went on, this group of people became specialized in that, and they formed what they called the Great Council. If we remember in uh, Pastor David talking about this when he was talking about Mark, about the teachers of the law and, and, the, and, the, and the chief priests who were opposed to Jesus, that's who we're talking about. This, these people, these Levites, who were responsible for teaching the people what the law said. They took it upon themselves in this great council that they formed to say that the Holy Spirit had been removed from Israel and because there was no prophecy and that they were the successors of the prophets. That meant that since there were no prophets, they expected no miracles and they expected also there to be um, <clears throat> no prophecy. So when John the Baptist shows up prophesying and acting like a prophet, and Jesus shows up doing miracles, it automatically challenges their legitimacy and their authority to be interpreters of the law. And so that whole theme will conti continues when Peter brings up that not only is, is, the, is, is there's been miracles and Jesus has come and given his life and risen from the dead, as we'll see in a minute, but also that 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 now the Holy Spirit is now being given not just to the, to the prophets, but to everyone. And that, um, and that becomes a serious issue for the people who are listening to this. This is a real challenge to them. <clears throat> we could talk about more about, about prophecy, visions, dreams, and its relationship to the Council of God, but we just don't have time to do that tonight. So we're going to move on. So let's look at chapter 22 to 23. This is sort of the... The attack. And what I'd like you to notice, the change in sentence structure and the use of the, of the personal pronoun you and the way that it's directed towards, towards the audience. So it goes like this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man clearly attested to you by God with power, deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs that God performed among you through him just as you yourselves know this man who was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles. But God raised him up, having released him from the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. So if we look at, the, at Peter's sermon as he presents the gospel, we begin to see a series of points. Jesus was attested to you by God through the powerful deeds, wonders, and miracles. Then number two, by the predetermined plan of God, Jesus was handed over to the Gentiles and you executed him by nailing him to a cross, but God raised him up. And then he continues with the next quote. For, God, for David says about him, I saw the Lord always in front of me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My body will also live in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor permit your Holy One to experience decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of joy and your presence. Brothers, I can speak confidently to you about our forefather David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So then, 
because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, David, by foreseeing this, spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his body experience decay. Peter's structure is very, very much um, pounding as he speaks upon his audience. And it means they're, they're basically run on sentences in English, but in Greek there would be, be good sentences. Um, nonetheless, what he's doing is he's confronting them. He quotes again from the Septuagint in this quote from Psalm 16. He, he says, he claims that it speaks about the Christ. And he does so because of two things. Because it says that his body will not decay or rot in the original. And also that he will not be sent down to the, to the grave or Hades. And <clears throat> so those two things Peter pulls out and says... This can't be about David. This has to be about the Messiah, the promised Christ. So he's speaking about the Christ, and he brings up this other crisis in the Jewish faith, and that is that at this time, and that is that there was a promise in 2 Samuel 7, which he alludes to, where God promised David that there would always be a descendant of his on the throne of uh, uh, ruling over the people of Israel. And yet at the time of Jesus and the time of the first century, there had not been such a person for hundreds of years. The last such person is mentioned in the Bible as Zerubbabel before Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So again, about four, over 400 years prior. So there, there's this promise that God had made and it seems like he's not fulfilling. And now he's bringing up this, this crisis and saying that Jesus is the one who's solving it. So he continues, For David did not descend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know beyond a doubt that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. If I get nothing else out to you today, I want you to see how he confronts his audience with their responsibility for the death of Christ. And yet God raised him from the dead. And though they were players in this, that God... It was part of God's plan. But nonetheless, he wants to emphasize that they're responsible. That they have a play, part to play. And so if we continue on with Peter's, um, <clears throat> excuse me, his description of his experience of the gospel, it talks about that they are witnesses and that God has enabled this Jesus, as uh, this Jesus, to His right hand, um, and give Him the, and gave Him the promised Holy Spirit, so that He can then pour His Spirit out on us. So, what Peter now says and focuses on is, what are we to do about it? In the verses that we're going to read, he talks about how they are acutely distressed. The word literally there is to be cut to the heart. And it means to, be, uh, to become contrite. It's an idiom for that. He also talks about being, to repenting, repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. First, we need, let's talk about what repent is. It's a word that we 
used a lot in church. It, it is, comes from a word that means literally to have a change of mind. And <clears throat> an easy way to think about it is, and I'm sure you've heard this before, is, the, to, is to be like a guy who recognizes that you're, that you're finally lost and have to admit that you have to turn around and go back and start over. Um, so that's what really repenting is. It's that process of figuring out that you have, are, are in the wrong and that you have turned, made a wrong, taken a wrong path, and that you need to go back to where you weren't wrong and start over. And then to be baptized, and I want to focus on the word in there. It's a word that we, we um, gloss over. It is, in the original language, a preposition. A preposition in, in, that, in the original language is sort of like a signpost. It's supposed to be a crutch to help you better understand how to translate what follows. And so in this case, it, me, it literally is the word upon, but it means upon in the sense of um, to be invested in. <clears throat> so it's not, you're, you repent and you're being, being, you, when you're baptized, you're, in, you're in, in a sense investing in the name of Jesus Christ. And the second word for is another preposition. It means literally, in this case, into so that you're being baptized, <clears throat> invested in, for the, in the name of Jesus Christ, into a state of being forgiven of your sins. Amen. That's really, really what, the, what Peter is really saying, and really specifically. And it's really important to see this because when we look in Acts and we see summaries of these, our Peter's sermons and other sermons, oftentimes they don't talk in detail about how exactly a person becomes a follower of Jesus they give a, a real quick summary and say so many people believed or people were added to their number. But it's only a very couple places where we really get a clear description of what exactly the apostles asked people to do in response. So repent and be baptized, invested in the name of Jesus Christ, in, in, in the name of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> into the state of forgiveness of sins. And then you, there's a promise that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why that's important is, is that the Holy Spirit is now being put upon all people, or upon all people who are believers. Paul will later say it's a mark of us belonging to Christ. But it also has something, another important meaning with related to that, that verse in Acts I mean, that, that's quoted in Joel about being, uh, receiving the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit coming upon you and people will prophesy and dream dreams and have visions. You see, if you look carefully in the Bible throughout, you'll see that there, from the very beginning, God sought to have a relationship with human beings and to, have, to take counsel with them. So, for instance, we read in the Bible about Adam and Adam walking with God in the garden and conversing with him. And then we move forward to the story of Abraham and, and God uh, appears to him in the form of an angel of the Lord, a theophany, they call that. Um, and he asks Abraham what he should do about the city of Sodom 
and Gomorrah. And, and Abraham has a debate with him about what he should do. And finally, um, Abraham can, um, counsels with God and God decides in conjunction in, in, as response of his conversation with Abraham to spare the city of Sodom and Gomorrah if he can find 10 righteous people. And then if we jump ahead to the prophets, we can see in the story of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is, is called to be an, a prophet. He, Isaiah has a vision, and in the vision he sees the throne of God, and God is having a discussion with his counselors about who he should send to go and, and speak prophecy to the people of Israel. And, and Isaiah says, send me, because he's part of that same council. And so, and so we should understand that when we receive the Holy Spirit, it means that God is dwelling in us and we are now part of the counsel of God. And that means that we, um, have, a, we have access with God and we can, we, he can converse with us and we can converse with him. We live in a culture where that maybe in a Christian culture where that may seem like that's not a big deal, but it really, really is. And it really is an important meaning of what it's, when it says that he gave the Holy Spirit to us. So, verse 40 and 41. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added. Luke tells us that uh, he quotes um, from another part of Peter's sermon that we don't have, save yourselves from this perverse generation. It's reminiscent of the words from Joel in the original Hebrew um, of what is, ha- is going to happen in the last days. And, <clears throat> and yet, with this simple sermon, 3,000 people come to believe in Jesus, which creates a new problem um, but nonetheless, let's, let's look at this invitation. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, the Lord in Christ. Peter understood that though Jesus was the Son of God and the Christ, but he assumed his office of Christ as foretold in the end times in, in the Old Testament um, with, his, with his exaltation into heaven, with his ascension into heaven, and sitting on the right hand of God. Um, that's when he assumes his responsibilities as reigning as the Christ over all of the universe. <clears throat> so he, God has made Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. If you think about if you were there and you were one of the people who had been at least a witness to Jesus' death, you share in that. And so when Peter points that out to you, that now they, as they're, they're witnesses that he's risen from the dead, that he is the Christ, that you now are, that you're the person responsible for his death. So repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. This is a promise for you, your children, and for all whom God may call to himself. I put these up here so that you might think about this. You can sit down with your, with your Bible and simply outline these nine different things And if you can memorize them, you are prepared to tell and explain the gospel in the same way that Peter did. 
He's, he's shown, he proved himself by his miracles. He was crucified in accordance to God's plan. <clears throat> you were responsible for that crucifixion, but God raised him from the dead. He ascended to the heaven. Um, and God has made him, Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. And so our response is to repent and be baptized and we'll receive forgiveness for our sins and dwell in that. So in conclusion, when Peter finished his sermon, he created a new problem for the church. 3,000 people who were new believers but needed to learn what it meant to be a disciple. And so if you want to read ahead on your own, verses 42 through 47, explained how the church figured out what they should do to turn those 3,000 believers into 3,000 disciples. So that concludes what I was going to say tonight. So if anyone has any questions, we have five, a little bit less than five minutes. Let's close with prayer then. Our gracious God, we give you thanks and praise. Pray that you would bless each one of us with your Holy Spirit. Remind us of uh, the access that we have to you because of that. And fill us anew with joy as we live in your forgiveness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.